Well, welcome back, everybody. This is the Think Healthcare podcast, and again, I'm your host, Dr. Sean Favel. Well, today we're going to be speaking to a lady called Michaela. Michaela has a new role within the NHS, um, and this role is referred to as ACP, I believe. Michaela, what does ACP stand for? Uh, So ACP stands for an Advanced Clinical Practitioner. Right, okay. And this is a brand new role in the NHS, isn't it? When we say brand new, how long has this role been here for? It's been for a couple of years, um, about two, three years. And it's an initiative um, that is done by the um, Health England Education. Um, More and more trusts are sort of getting them, but I think locally it's quite new, yeah. Yeah, so uh, ACP, Advanced Clinical Practitioner. Is it called that in every hospital or is that kind of a local term for this role? No, it is It is the generic term. That's the level of practice that the HEE set that is the definition of an ACP. So tell me then, McKay, you haven't always been an ACP. What What have you done? How have you got here? Um, well, I've done many multiple things, uh, ranging from McDonald's to uh, where I am now. Um, but my NHS career started as a healthcare support worker at Grimsby in approximately 2010. Um, and while I was doing my nurse training, I did some bank work. Um, and then I became a a&E staff nurse once qualifying in 2014. From there, I became an A&E sister um, and then I became critical care outreach as well. Right, okay. And that was about 2016. Yep. And then in 2019, I got um, offered the position at Lincoln County as the advanced clinical practitioner. Right, okay. So this is something that they offered you then? I applied, yeah, interviewed and yes. Yes, okay. So you started as a healthcare support worker uh, and this is something I've I've seen a little bit of, um, people starting as healthcare support workers and going on into clinical jobs. I've even met a couple of doctors who used to be healthcare support workers way back when. But it's not just apparently being an advanced clinical practitioner is not just a role for nurses. Is that correct? No. So it can be, I mean, I maybe people may correct me, but it can be a paramedic by background, a pharmacist by background and physios, I think, by background. They can all go on to do the ACP training. So you started as a healthcare support worker. Which department did you work in? A&E. A&E. So you've kind of been an A&E um, st- staff member for, for many, many years yes. then. Yeah, yeah. What was it about A&E that, that attracted you there? Uh, I did do some ward work um, when I in- initially first started. But for me, um, it's the, you can't explain it, I don't think. And I said this to the junior doctors on the induction. I think it's a family a, fam- a family orientated area to work in. And although it's an extremely hard area to work in at times, it's a very... It's just a one of a kind place to work. You know, you don't know what's coming through the door, which I enjoy. I don't like the mundaneness of sometimes as hard as ward work is. It's quite routine. It's quite structured. Uh, where A and E isn't that at all, as you know yourself. Um, you can come into twenty five patients, or you can come into two at the beginning of your shift. You just don't know. A and E is one of those specialties that seems to suit people who. Uh, don't like routine you know it's, yeah. it's one of those things where you like something a little bit different every day and, and you, you don't know what to expect and I've often seen comparisons run between ITU nurses and ED nurses whereas the ITU nurses seem to be uh, extremely organized and things and ED nurses seem to be to like things a little bit 
up in the air. Is that would you say that's fair to say? Yeah, it's funny you should say that actually, Sean. Um, because I was the first um critical care outreachist to not come from intensive care. Um, I've got no intensive care background apart from I did my critical care competences once I became outreach. Uh, and it caused quite a bone of contention among some of the ITU nurses in the previous trust that I worked in right. um, because they couldn't understand how I could be critical care without having that um, very structured approach to the intensive care working. Now, these are interesting roles. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of these kind of roles. The reason behind these is previously there was there was a barrier. You were either a nurse or maybe a paramedic uh, or you were a doctor and never the twain shall meet. And sometimes you used to feel as though the nursing role was quite limited unless you wanted to go off into management and to be a sister and, and things like that. Um, we, we were quite capped, but now this allows people who are nurses and paramedics who have got clinical experience to go on and to develop clinical practice. So some people have accused this role as being the cheap alternative to doctors. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah, I have heard this. Um, for me, it wasn't, you know, a cheap alternative to being a doctor. I knew quite early on, especially when I became a sister in a &E, that I did not want to go into management. And like you said, just said, it was very capped previously. That was sort of really, once you've become a nurse practitioner in a &E, that was the farthest you can go without then becoming management. So for me, it was a way to broaden my role clinically, um, without becoming a, as you said, cheap doctor. But actually, we're not cheap doctors. Um, as you probably know, we're quite expensive to train. <laughs> um, and also, um, you know, our, our salary is higher of a F1 or F2 to begin with. Um, but yes, I don't think we're a cheap alternative. I think we are an alternative. And I think it, you know, it was due to the staffing ga uh, gaps in medicine. Yes. To why we was brought about. But yes, I don't think we're the the cheap alternative. No, that's right. I think it's interesting to point out as well that most people who go on to roles like ACP are already very senior. Uh, so yourself as a senior nurse, you have a kind of a senior overview anyway of working in the emergency department, meaning that you're actually quite experienced. You kind of know how it works. Whereas a lot of our doctors that we get, you know, they've had no ED experience at all. So um, and I think we suffer a little bit. I think with medicine, with being a doctor, the advantage can be the disadvantage. Sometimes the advantage of being a doctor is you can do lots of different rotations uh, through lots of different specialties, get a very broad amount of experience. But the disadvantage means our rotating doctors are often not very experienced in the specialties they're working in. Whereas ACPs, are a little bit more stable and these are new roles but i imagine you know 10 years down the line you'll be a practitioner with 10 years experience in the emergency department and that to me would put you at a consultant level would you agree with that um yes and no um i do think that yes i mean i've got experience from different levels of the ED department like say starting as a healthcare and through so yes, in some extent, I do agree. But then to argue it, I do think that having the rotation, which we don't have as trainee ACPs, um, apart from we have clinical support days where we can work where we want to work, but that's sort of once a month. 
I do think actually having rotations does help bring a little bit more knowledge into the department. I think if you permanently want to work in A&E, brilliant. Um, but the, as you know yourself, you know, working in areas such as a respiratory ward or an orthopaedic ward, even if it is just for six months, that's experience that you can then bring back to the ED. Um, but yeah, no, I do generally agree with what you're saying that, yes, I am quite experienced in emergency medicine. If you put me in a ward, I wouldn't know what to do. So just for the sake of people that are listening who don't quite understand roles, explain then the difference between being a nurse and being an advanced clinical practitioner. Um, it's something that is quite blurred, I think, um, especially if doctors have come from trusts that don't necessarily have ACPs. They don't quite understand what we are. But a nurse is someone who's done a honours degree in science in adult or mental health nurse, not paediatrics. Um, and they sort of, from, from an ED perspective, they'll be the ones that you first see when you come into the department. They'll take in a triage, they'll assess you, and then you'll go in to the queue to be seen. So when you come into the ED, you can be seen by one of us, which is an advanced clinical practitioner, or one of the doctors or one of the ENPs if you've got a minor injury. That's an emergency nurse practitioner yes. for those who don't know. Yeah, yet. sorry, yeah. Um, so um, as the ACP, I will basically examine you, see you, order diagnostic tests, um, and hopefully get to a diagnosis um, and treatment that you need um, within the, you know, the ED department and with the support of the, the lead consultant. And I also understand then that this role, um, there's uh, educational achievements that you need to go through. Is it a master's you have to do? Yes, yeah, yeah, so it's a master's in science, yes, which I'm currently in the process of completing. So there's, there's a fair amount of academic training that goes behind this. Now, one of the questions that I, I find interesting, I've asked a few people about this. Uh, I've got a, a good friend, somebody who you actually know as well, who's just come from a senior nurse role into a trainee advanced clinical practitioner role. And one of the things that she told me is after being many, many years of being a nurse, she suddenly realises how difficult it was for doctors and practitioners to make decisions yeah. about patients and things. Did you experience the same thing? Is it very different to what you thought it was going to um, be? Yeah, I did laugh actually um, with a couple of the doctors um, when I took on this role. I can remember being that nurse in charge screaming at you for not making a decision within two hours, you know, <laughs> about the government guidelines of breaches. But then actually happens to be that clinician to make that decision and that responsibility and thinking, you know, and that sort of being that junior that I can't make a decision that quickly and having that shift leader scream at me for not making a decision. Definitely 100% feel sorry for you guys now. <laughs> you know, feel sorry for yourself too because yeah. you're, now, you're now part of the clan. Uh, and this is also a role recognised by the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. Is that true? When you decide to do the advanced clinical practice, the, the master's is generic. Um, it doesn't matter what area you work in, whether it's general practice, emergency medicine or acute medicine or even surgery. The underlying master's is generic. Um, and then you go on to credential with whoever you want to credential with. For me, it will be the Royal College of Emergency, and it is the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, which I'm a member of, um, and I'm completing a portfolio of, yes. And the actual master's part then, that's done at the local university, is yes, that right? yeah. So yeah. do you have to attend lectures, or is that done online? Well, or? we did until COVID, um, <laughs> and now it's online, yes. It's one day a week online. How long does it take then to become a fully qualified ACP? So it takes three years, three years to become a fully qualified ACP. Uh, and then 
I think you have a year to come or two years to complete your chosen credentialing if you wish to credential. Myself, I'm a fan, you know, I'm a consultant in emergency medicine, so I've gone through the traditional route, but I'm very much a a fan of the clinical practitioner role. Um, What I think I get with the ACPs that work uh, part of the team that I work with is you get a, a... I was going to say more mature. That's the wrong word. I could easily get a clip around the ear, <laughs> but a more a more senior view sometimes of of the problems that come along. A little bit more pragmatic. And at my junior doctors, as clever as a lot of them are, and as dedicated as they are, um, have a very book like approach at first because they've had a lack of experience and exposure. Uh, whereas the advanced clinical practitioners have had a lot of experience and exposure, so kind of make decisions um, with a more can't use senior again, can I? <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> senior, you know, but with a uh, I guess a, a kind of a more um, uh, mature clinical mindset. Treads yeah. carefully. Yeah, tread very carefully. Um, I am very for myself. I am very junior in regards to being a training ACP five years post qualifying. But for some of my colleagues, yes, I I agree that with a hundred percent. And I, I don't necessarily think it's the length of. Um, how can I word this? I don't think it's the length of experience that makes us the way we are as practitioners. I think it's necessarily having that bedside um, experience as yes. a nurse and as a as a healthcare or as a nurse. We often refer it to a nurse's spidey sense. Um, yes. That I don't often find doctors having. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. No, no, no. Um, you know, a nurse, as you probably come across yourself in your long career, I'm getting you back now, um, but... A nurse will come to you and say, I'm not quite right about Joe Bloggs. There's just something and I don't quite know what it is. Yes. And I don't think doctors often have that. And I think that's through the experience of having that bedside care. Yes. And just knowing when a patient's not quite right. So there's a phrase for that. It's called gestalt. I don't know whether you've ever heard of that or not. No. It's actually uh, being researched and looked at in evidence. So gestalt... Uh, it's not quite intuition, but I guess you can paraphrase it, calling it intuition. Uh, it's intuition a practitioner might have, uh, like a doctor, who has significant experience. And gestalt means that sometimes you can look at a patient and, like you said, your spidey senses, mm. you you can tell whether a patient's sick or not sick. And you sometimes you take one look and you know what's wrong with the patient. Um, and that comes from experience. That's not something that can be taught. Gestalt can't be taught. And interestingly, it's studied, it's a German word, and apparently it is clinically evident. So you can actually measure Gestalt in, in practitioners who uh, it can make diagnoses using their intuition, um, you know, with clinical relevance. So it's interesting, and that's probably a good way to explain what happens, I think, when I see the ACPs working. They have that clinical intuition already. Uh, which puts them ahead of the standard uh, F1 and F2. So that's interesting. Now, talking about that, so I've kind of uh, bigged up there a little bit the ACP role because I am a fan. Uh, How do you find your role uh, uh, accepted by other doctors? Um, In in the current trust that I work for very well, um, but there's ACPs for everything in current trust I'm working in so they're quite a go-to and used role in the previous trust I worked in and why I didn't choose to do my ACP training there was it was very it was a very novice principle and no one really quite knew what an ACP was um even the people who was meant to be in charge of of sort of leading the ACP pilot didn't quite know what an ACP was yes um so I think you know it 
how you are perceived as an ACP very much depends on the trust you work in or the area you work in. I am lucky, um, and especially like with the new take of new junior doctors, they've often said, you know, we're thankful that you're here. You know, we couldn't have done this without you. We just basic knowledge of where stuff is, etc. That I think sometimes junior doctors feel a bit stupid asking other doctors, but they'll feel quite happy to ask an ACP. Don't yes. quite know why, but yeah. So I think I'm very lucky in my my role in my area, and I'm I'm sort of accepted quite yeah, well. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I think I touched on earlier is that uh, as an ECP on the department, you you're kind of a permanent feature, or you or you are, especially if you're trained. That's your role. You're down in in, in ED. So you become experienced, you know the pathways, you know how treatment's done. Um, and you've also got an advantage over a doctor is you probably know where things are too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's one we get asked quite a lot. Yeah, that's right. Where doctors never know where anything yeah, is. No. And I've noticed that an ACP will put their hands on a Goodell airway in seconds, <laughs> whereas yes. a doctor will be running around the department looking confused. So are you still enjoying working in ED then? I love it. I do love it. Um I have my days um, where I do question myself, question my practice. I think that's natural. Um, but generally, I I love the job. I love the environment. I love the staff. I love the team. Um, we work hard and we play hard. Um, and I, we're very much like a family. We don't always get on and we don't always see eye to eye. But when something goes down, we're all there for each other. And that's something that I like. Well, the thing I like the best about ED, I guess, is uh, um, it's a little bit more, I, I find it a little bit more casual. It is a stressful environment. We're all very, very busy. People are forced together and you're forced to become friends, which people do in ED. Mm -hmm. So then you develop these relationships and that enables you to be yourself. And I've found when I've worked in other specialties, I've rotated through, I've had to adopt my doctor persona. Um, but in ED, I always felt very, very comfortable being being who I was. Um, that's one of the things that I get out of emergency medicine anyway. So I've always had a, a, a sense of family in things yeah. and the phrase ED family I've heard mentioned many, many times. I do agree with you there. Um, I don't feel that I would fit in to the ACP role anywhere else in, in the trust that I work in. Um, <laughs> um, because of my personality and the type yeah. of person I am. And like you say, you can be a little bit more yourself in the ED department. That's right. And we tend to have a little bit darker senses of humour and things like that at yeah, times. Yeah, we've definitely got a gallows humour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, ED is a roller coaster. This is the thing. And um, you can go from tremendous highs to tremendous lows. And the lows yeah. can be really, really low. You know, we uh, we see a lot of tragedies and things and, and we get wrapped up and involved in those. So sometimes we have to find ways of uh, of coping with these kind of things and outletting so what do you do then um <laughs> have a gin problem uh no um so yeah i i do kickboxing um oh my with my boy i have to be careful <laughs> talking about senior stuff then <laughs> um and i am you know socializing i do do quite a lot of uh, and i think it's a very good way to blow off steam you know i'm a single mum with two boys so i do do find it difficult to do other things so I notice ED uh, departments tend to have a lot of social events and things like that. Well, we did do. Um, COVID sort of put a head to yes. all that, hasn't it? Unfortunately, we don't even know if we're going to have a Christmas party this year, unfortunately. No. But, no, but yeah. no. So if you hadn't have picked ED then, if you couldn't do ED and you had to do something else, what would you choose? 
Um, if you would have asked me that question 10 years ago, I probably would have said orthopedics because I had an right. interest in trauma um, and sort of how to look after the traumatized limb and stuff like that. But actually, I always used to say I would never go into respiratory, but then becoming critical AI outreach, um, that is predominantly what we look after on the wards right. is respiratory patients. So, yeah, I would have probably gone into respiratory. Was you never tempted then to go off and do a medical degree? Would you have seen any advantage to that or...? Um, I'm going to sound really bad now, Anna, but the, the, back then when I started my nurse training, it was funded by the government um, with the bursaries and I had a six-month-old child at the time. Yes. So I have got the, the A-levels that would have allowed me to get access to um, medical training, yes. um, but it was easier for me to do the nursing training room, yes. given my personal. Because that's one of the advantages, because... Um, Doing a medical degree, we spoke about the two years academic and the three years clinical work. All of that is unpaid. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the uh, advanced clinical practitioner role, it is a paid job. So even as yes. a trainee, you are providing service provision. So you get paid at the same time. So it does make it accessible uh, and things to the people. Whereas medicine can be a, a challenge, you know, five years, um, ringing up debt and, and things like that. People have asked me if I had the the chance again, would I go back and be a doctor? And, you know, um, with my hand on my heart, I can't answer that definitely. But there's part of me that thinks, no, I wouldn't now. Five years is a lo- it was a long time to yeah. take out of your life to do a medical degree. And, uh, and I was the same as you. I had young children at the time. Yeah. And one of the things I noticed about uh, being a doctor, you, you did the training, so I was just gone. Dad's just studying all the time. And then, then I was a junior doctor, uh, and then I was just at work all the time. <laughs> and by the time I hit any kind of seniority, all my children were grown up and things. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes what happens. Do you worry about that at all? Um, yeah, I do. Obviously, when I started my nurse training, um, my young, my oldest was six months old. Um, he's now 10. Um, and then I had a second child not long after qualifying, who's now five. Um, and, you know, they do often say, oh, mum, are you going to work again? Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, I studied all through Caleb growing up, which is my oldest. And then my youngest growing up, I've basically worked on and now studied. But however, I feel that I'm teaching them good values. You know, yes. you go to work to earn a wage and they're very proud of what I do. You know, I've gone in to speak to the school with my oldest when I was a nurse. Wow, yes. Um, and I did CPR training at the school through the British Heart Foundation a few years ago That when they did the big drive to get school children to learn CPR. Um, so they're very proud of what I do. Um, but I do feel sometimes, yes, I am missing vital parts of their childhood. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. So, you know, it does teach children good values. It teaches them about work work ethic and work commitment. Um, the other thing as well to point out there, Michaela, if you don't mind me pointing out, is you, you managed to do this as a single mum. Mm. And that, to me, is a signal to other people who are considering doing this too, uh, that it's doable. So you've managed to do all your training as a nurse, uh, to go on and become a senior nurse and then to go on and become an advanced clinical practitioner and you're undertaking a master's degree while being a single mum. And I'm sure it's had its challenges and Mm. things, but it's doable. Fair to say again? Yeah, it definitely had its challenges. Um, massively um i've relied a lot on childcare. you know you know my, 
my children have been passed from pillar to post sometimes <laughs> and I have had to write in my diary what nana they're with tonight because I've completely forgot. Um, but yes, completely doable and completely worth it. Would you recommend becoming an advanced clinical practitioner? Yeah, definitely. Especially if you're like myself who, you know, didn't necessarily have the means to go through medical school. I don't think it is a way to become a chief doctor. And we're not doctors. We are practitioners. And And I'm proud to say I'm not a doctor. I am a nurse by background. And, you know, I'll often still do nursing roles even when I'm as an ACP, you know, and I'm I'm not ashamed to do that and I'm quite proud to be that. Um, so, yeah, for me, I knew quite early on, like I said previously, in my career, I never wanted to go up the managerial ladder. I didn't want to be sat in an office. That's not what I came into nursing and, and to work in the NHS for. I came in to provide good patient-centred care. So for me, the sort of coming out of the ACP role was fantastic because it was a way for me to progress that was non that was still clinical without the managerial aspect. So it's very interesting because you see, I make a rubbish nurse, and and I, and I've I've I had a go. So when <laughs> when I went to medical school, uh, believe it or not, so when we actually passed our exams at the medical school that that, that I graduated from, you had to do two weeks nursing after you'd actually finished before you could get your qualification. <laughs> and uh, so I spent two years on a medic, uh, two years, sorry, two weeks, two <laughs> like years, two, my years. Gosh, yeah, two weeks on a medical ward. And the first thing that I remember, the most profound thing I remember about that was my feet were killing me. Yeah, you've right. definitely got to get good shoes. Yeah, I've got, absolutely. And it's because of that I did. I had to take advice on what shoes to buy. Yeah. And then and I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I'm going to be an F1 doctor or a, a house officer. And I'm going to have to have really good shoes. But once I became a house officer, I didn't do nearly as much walking at all. No, so no. That, was, that was the first thing. And I actually remember thinking uh, being a nurse was a really, really tough job. Um, so it's one that I couldn't do. And I make a rubbish nurse now because I have a go at trying to find blankets and things like that for patients. And I can never find them. I end up By the time <laughs> I found one, somebody else has already found it and took the patient up. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, we talk about nurses and advanced practitioners and, and doctors. Um, but the healthcare support workers definitely as well are such an under underspoke about and vital aspects of ED. Um, a lot of them probably could could do a lot of our jobs with their eyes shuts, to be fair, as well. Yeah, that's right. Well, we've got, you know, uh, one at the local hospital um, uh, that I work at who's a healthcare support worker, but now she's uh, she's been there a long, long time. Uh, if I'm allowed to mention her name, it's Haley anyway, but she's quite senior and, mm-hmm. and works with the flow and things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and, and flow, for those that don't know, is trying to coordinate the department to get patients in and out get their treatments get them to the right wards and things like that it's a very responsible position and that's done by a healthcare support worker so traditionally that's considered to be an untrained position but i think that's unfair because mm-hmm. i don't think healthcare support workers are untrained no. they get quite a bit of training when, um, when they're on the job and things and they, they, they learn a, uh, a lot of skills and you came from that background, mm-hmm. yeah. So why didn't you become a nurse straight away then? Why did you go into to be a healthcare support worker? So I did the healthcare support work in just to basically sort of get an, a grasp of whether I'd enjoy sort of, because it's all well and good we have these ideas what we want to be like. We've joked before previously that I'd love to be a vet, but I couldn't I couldn't deal with a poorly, poorly animal. It made me too upset. Yeah. Um. So I, I decided to become a healthcare support worker to sort of, Test the water, if you like, first. Yes. And then I w- I did it, what what's called on a bank 
basis while I was doing my training. So wherever I had a day off, I'd pick a shift up. Yes. With the healthcare support workers, I've got a lot of time for them too. And the reason is, is it's not a very well-paid career being a healthcare support worker. And most of them do it for a passion for the work that they do. Uh, I've got a great example of that. I've got a guy I'm hoping to try and get on the podcast called Will. Did you come across Will? Was he the volunteer? Yeah, he was the volunteer. uh, Yeah, he was brilliant. His his real career was being a swimming instructor. yeah. Uh, and because of the COVID, he wasn't able to instruct anymore. And he spent the last three, four months coming to work nearly every bloody day. He seemed to be there nearly every day anyway. Um, Coming to work every day um, to actually work as a volunteer. And he he was portering, pushing patients around, taking blood places. He got a whole host of, uh, of jobs that he did. And he loved the work so much, did it for free. He's recently applied to his local hospital for a role as a healthcare support worker. Oh, I'm and has sh- been accepted. Oh, so fantastic. he's now coming on. Um, so he's a swimming instructor and a healthcare yeah, support worker. he was amazing, now. especially during the COVID time. He was just, especially like you say, because he was a volunteer, so technically he was coming to work for, for nothing. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and I have invited him onto the podcast. I'm trying to get him to come. He said he's going to come on. Um, because I think getting his viewpoint would mm. would be really important. But this is the one of the things that happens in the NHS, you know, and it's also one of our downfalls because we uh, we rely on the goodwill of the staff that we have here, and that allows us to be abused a little bit. I yes. think. Would you agree with them? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I've seen that particularly in my training as well because at the end of the day, I am a trainee advanced clinical practitioner, but yet, and we're not technically meant to be in the numbers but yet somehow like you say due to poor staffing due to sort of our goodwill and our sort of caring nature we'll go above and beyond for our patients when really we're going above and beyond what our job role is yes i agree and i think uh you know the nhs runs on goodwill and in actual fact i mean i've seen um particularly in the emergency department but in hospitals in generally over sort of the last 20 years uh, our roles have got busier and busier and harder and harder. And I've seen that that uh, what's happened there is they've just utilised the goodwill of the staff. People thinking that this is temporary and what we're all doing is banding together, um, putting in extra, you know, 50% extra every single shift to try and keep the service running for when the good times come. But the good times don't seem to come. Going back to the healthcare support workers, um, there's a lot of goodwill from them. These these tend to be a subset of people who are interested in care, uh, who give up. Well, they don't give up the time they're employed, but they're they're being employed for for quite a low wage, I think. Um, yeah, especially for what they do. If if you think about it, especially in ED, I can't speak for the wards, but the majority of the healthcare support workers in ED can bleed, can so they can take bloods from patients, they can cannulate, they can do ECGs, they can do plaster. Can- so actually they're quite well they're very skilled healthcare yes. support workers really and they're paid the same as on a ward where necessarily they won't be able to bleed and cannulate a patient um so really like you say the nhs is run on goodwill because i feel technically they could actually demand a little bit more yes. but they don't yes i think so too because i think they're they're uh, they are quite highly skilled, um, as you've said, and, and they're, they're vital in the department, mm-hmm. you know. Emergency medicine is a team sport, and you have to work as part of a team. 
And that team has many members from doctors, nurses, practitioners, healthcare support workers, uh, but porters, mm. cleaners, and yeah. things like that. You know, the role of the cleaners, especially during the, the COVID, um, is phenomenal. And they're often unsung heroes. Yeah. We, you know, we, we don't hear people talking about the role that they do. But I often think about them every time I go to the toilet and I can see the cleaner there yeah. cleaning up all the mess that we've left in the men's <laughs> toilets and things yeah, like that. Yeah, your men's toilets smell horrendous down so the, the corridor. What are you doing in the men's toilets, <laughs> No, Michaela? we can smell it down the corridor. <laughs> can you? Right? Okay. Oh, my goodness me. So if I told you I was sniffing the ladies' toilets and things... <laughs> we smell like roses, honestly. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think the GMC would end up getting a complaint. <laughs> but no, I agree. I often say um, when talking about... Because um, I had it previously in my other role uh, when I was quick care outreach. Um, people would bleep me and I'd answer the phone and they'd say, thank God it was you. You know, you're one of the approachable ones. You don't make me feel stupid for ringing and... How I always said it is we're all cogs in the same machine. Yes. From literally from the domestics, which are cleaners, from the kitchen staff to the porters, right up to the consultants and to the you know, the medical director himself. We're all cogs in that same machine. And if you take any one of us out, it will fall apart. You know, one of the things that's vital, I think, in healthcare work is is communication. And I do think E D staff tend to be good communicators. Um that, well, I think they have to be good mm. communicators because uh, we have to deal with lots of different departments and things like that. And I think it's a relative term. So maybe I should say we're relatively good communicators, yeah. <laughs> but we, we have to have the ability to sort of communicate with, with, with other people. Uh, yeah, we are. And I, like you say, we can we can sell any patient to any speciality, really, can't we? So, yeah, <laughs> that's, right. so that's what referral referrals <laughs> are selling patients to specialities. That, that's all I see a referral. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to mention as well is the uh, the ACP role, of course, is not just for emergency medicine. You, you mentioned before we've mm. got stroke ACPs, we've got cardiology ACPs. You know, um, I did some work at the Northern General Hospital in Sheffield. They've actually got clinical practitioners, nurse practitioners there uh, that operate, you know, that open mm -hmm. chests for cardiothoracics and yeah. closer chests and do what we call long saphenous harvesting for those who who aren't that medically minded, that's removing the veins out of the leg to to use in the heart uh, for coronary artery bypass and things. So uh, the ACP role is, um, um, is developing quite quickly, and I like the fact that there's no limits. Do you see in future then being ACP consultants? Uh, yeah, I mean, with the local trust, there is a consultant um, ACP in cardiology. Right. Um, he was the lead of the ACPs in the trust as well. Um, so, yeah, there is definitely that scope. I mean, the nurse consultants um, are very few and far between now. And yes. I think they have been took over by the ACP. Um, my boss herself, she's a senior ACP, so she's an 8B, um, whereas most ACPs are an 8. Um, do I see ACP consultants? Yeah, possibly. possibly. Yeah, yeah, so... Because I think how that you know the role will develop in the future, and at the moment most of the ACPs we've got are relatively junior, mm. um, uh, inexperienced. That's what I mean by that, no, because yeah. the role's quite new. But you can imagine a, a place when people have been doing this for ten years, as I mentioned later. Uh, that's an extraordinarily experienced uh, and very valuable practitioner. Um, so you know, it, it makes me wonder how these roles are going to develop. 
um, you know, in the future because the, the NHS is changing. And, and like I said, I'm in support of it because this is all ultimately about patient care. It's yeah. about service provision. It's to make sure we've got their skills there. Uh, to help the patients that come through the front door. Well, our, our chem credentialing is it's the same pretty much as the ACCS for your doctors that come train in the emergency medicine. So potentially we've got the same set of skills as, as a middle grade. And once we are a, or, or above, and once we are fully qualified ACP, that's the level that we do work at is a middle grade. So the middle grade, for those of you who don't know, is um, we, you know, we, when you graduate from medical school, you, you're... Um, First of all, you're a foundation doctor, um, and then that goes on for a few years after two years of foundation training, where you're called um, a junior doctor. Uh, after that, you become a registrar. There's junior registrars and senior registrars, but kind of uh, as you get towards a senior medal, um, senior registrar, you can consider yourself to be a middle grade, mm-hmm. uh, and then above that would be the senior grade, which tends to be, I think, finally your registrars and consultants. I would consider to be senior grades. Um, so you'd be operating at a middle grade at the moment, but as I said, when I mentioned consultant, that made me mm. think that you'll be operating at the senior grade, yeah. and I, I can see that happening, and I would support that definitely, um, um, because it's you know it's, um, it's it's bringing new skills. I think the ACPs have a unique skill set that's different from the doctor skill yeah. set. I still think there's very much role for doctors. Doctors are, are, are different animals mm-hmm. uh, in a way. Um, um, but this enables us to be able to share our skills and things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, like you say, we, we come from different skill sets and I would be lost without the doctors in the department sometimes um, with regards to sort of guidance and advice and sometimes looking at it from more of a medical model because I think throughout your healthcare support working and throughout your nurse training, you're, you're sort of taught to look at the sort of not that doctors don't look holistically but we we tend to look more at a personal level i think i feel mm. as nurses um and we don't always concentrate on the medical i mean ed nursing slightly different um i feel because especially when you're doing the triage process because you're rapidly assessing a patient very quickly so that's quite medical um but trying to get out of that nursing mindset to become yes. a clinician and a diagnostician or however you say it um is completely different and I feel I wouldn't have been able to do that without the support of, you know, not only more senior ACPs than myself, but you guys as the medical field, definitely, yes. 100%. Well, I think it's uh, it's tackling the same problem, which again is patient illness, mm. from two different directions. I would say that doctors traditionally, although the role... Um, the recruitment for doctors is changing now, but traditionally comes from science. Mm-hmm. So doctors traditionally are scientists, so we learn lots of theory. We can learn quite complex physiology, um, and we come from a science perspective, and then we have to try and fit that scientific knowledge into the treatment of a patient. Uh, nurses come from a different side. It's very person-related, very patient-care-related, mm. so you're more about personal contact with people, uh, people who are patients um, and now the practitioner role is taking you from that very personal viewpoint towards 
clinical practice. So we come from two different directions, yeah. but basically to reach the same point, I believe. Um, and that's why I think it improves the skill sets, because some doctors, if you don't mind me saying out there, colleagues, uh, can be very scientific and not very sort of person-based yeah. Um uh, and things. So I, I, I see that with clinical practitioners, they see more of the patient than sometimes we doctors do that mm. see more of the disease. Yeah. Uh, that is changing, I think, now with medical recruitment. What medical schools are trying to do now is recruit more rounded people, people that are uh, academically quite strong, but also that are very rounded and understand people and, and, and those kind of things. What about prescribing? Okay, so do advanced clinical practitioners prescribe so um you have to do a module and it, it is incorporated in part of the masters if you haven't done so before like myself um but then there is training cps that have done the prescribing separately because you can do it as a yes nurse practitioner or a sort of advanced nurse in a gp practice you can do the non-medical prescribing module separate right okay so i'm doing it as part of my masters so when you actually finish your prescribing qualification mm -hmm. what are you allowed to prescribe anything a doctor can within the area of practice that i work in so yes. it is, it's sort of a and e is a bit we, we prescribe anything and everything but if i worked in a gp practice it'd be more sort of to the primary care type of medications that i would prescribe yes if that makes sense yeah okay so, so you'd be able to prescribe so things like control drugs morphine yes, yeah things like yeah, that okay yes. What about um, more advanced kind of practice that you might find some of the doctors doing, like procedural sedations and things yes, like that? Yes, we can do that. So um, obviously it goes on experience. And once once you've passed the prescribing module, you can't just then go off and prescribe. You have to build a portfolio yes. and get signed off um, to say you are fit to prescribe. Yeah, we can do procedural sedation. Um, part of the Archem credential and one of them is sedation um, yes. and airway management and intubation. So, yes. so, yeah. I think with doctors when they train, when they do like things like prescribing, um, I think it's difficult to pick out what we do because it's so integrated. Yeah. That's the yeah, thing. Yeah. So we learn kind of physiology, then we learn yeah. physiology pathways, then we learn what molecules can block them, and then yeah. we do... So I think sometimes it's it's kind of spread out. It's hard. It was hard for me when I look at my prescribing training to actually pick out which modules were prescribing because yeah. it was so integrated. Yeah. So that's good. So there's no limits at all then particularly. Um, and as I mentioned uh, before, you know, some practitioners do things like operate. So I guess in the right departments and things like that. So fairly high yeah. level things like chest drains, yeah, rapid sequence induction. Yeah, it's all things that we need to um, get signed off, if you like. As, like I say, the, the overall master's is um, sort of assessed at a level. Um, some of it academic, some of it practice. Um, it's OSCE Bay. So we have, the, it's recently changed. The MSc, the Masters, used to be very related to where you worked, where now it's a generic Masters and yes. then you go on to your area of work. Subspecialise. Subspecialise, yeah. yeah. So before it was very academically led, where now it's, it's OSCE based led. Um, with, yes. We do have a dissertation at the end of it, a service transformation project. But apart from that, it's, it's quite clinically based. 
So since you've been working in the emergency department, have you seen any changes to the amount of traffic that we get coming through the front door? Oh, yes. 110% on this. I remember when I first started as a healthcare support worker, um, the night shifts was was bliss. You know, by sort yes. of midnight, you'd be closing minors. Um, you close if you was on a twilight shift as a healthcare support worker, which is finishing at midnight. Your job would then to be closing clean minors, um, and then which is the minor injury unit. And then you know you'd be four or five patients in majors all night. It was yes. lovely. Now minors doesn't even get closed, does it? I don't think. No, um, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> And we're coming on in the morning to 20 patients in the department already at 7 o'clock in the morning. Definitely seen an increase in traffic. Yeah, it's very much so. You know, I can remember, I think I, I recall the story in the last podcast of, um, you know, having one doctor at night yeah. and that doctor was in bed for 1 o'clock and then, um, you know, would get up in his slippers uh, in the middle of the night maybe just to see one patient yeah. grumpily because he's been woken from <laughs> his sleep. Uh, now that's changed completely. It's it's very interesting. There's, uh, I touched on this last week um, with Doctor Wordsworth uh, when we were talking about you know the change in expectation from the public. But things are busy. I can remember talking to the nursing staff uh, at one of the local hospitals who said uh, it wasn't that many years ago, but they used to do a nativity play the nurses for the community at Christmas. So this was the ED nurses who used to uh, put on a little play they used to practice. And, and they said they used to practice at night. Yeah. The night shift would do all the rehearsals and yeah, things for yeah. the play and stuff. I can't imagine anything like that happening now. No, no. not. I mean, some nights we don't even get time to, to go to the toilet ourselves, do we? Um, but, yeah, no, I can remember when I first started, you know, one of the most senior nurses, um, God bless her, she's amazing, she would bring in, like, a hot pot for us all to eat yes. at the same time, so at 2 o'clock in the morning, yes. and we'd all sit down and eat it. Not, got, not cat and health chance would that happen that's now. Right. Or buffets and things. Yeah. Now, this never happened. Anybody that's listening, this is complete fantasy, never happened. But do you remember playing cricket on the department? Oh, yeah, and trolley surfing. Trolley. Yeah, I remember <laughs> or, or sitting on the chairs that's got wheels and doing timed races around yes, the yeah, yeah. things That never really happened for anybody from the public no. or from hospital management that's listening. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, but you, yeah, you, them days were amazing. I used to enjoy doing the night yeah. shifts uh, way back then, different atmosphere. Um, you were less busy, although there was less staff. It was a bit more friendly. You could sit down and have a chat, um, keep an eye on the department. And what do you think personally then, from your personal perspective, why do you think we see more patients now? Um, a mixture of things. You know, it's very quick to jump on the bandwagon of, of slating GPs that they don't see patients. But, you know, they have their own in increasing workload with smaller consultation gaps. Um, I think public perception and um, what they feel they are entitled to by the NHS, if that's the right way of putting yes. it. You know, they know they can go to the local AD, uh, ED and get said investigations quicker. Yes. Um, which doesn't help people not being patient. They don't want to wait for a GP appointment, so they'll come to ED. Um, people getting older, so having longer-term conditions, becoming more ill, has put an increasing pressure on yes. the ED. Um, and although, like you said yourselves, our traffic has increased, I don't necessarily think our staffing has also increased to correlate no, with that. No, that's right. A lot of people blame uh, GPs. I think there's... 
you know, the GPs are extremely busy yeah. as well. Uh, there has been a change in their contract. I think I can't remember when that happened. They tend to do a lot less sort of nights and weekends, um, but we do have urgent treatment centres now and things. So uh, uh, personally, I think it's patient expectation. Yeah. They they want medical consultations yes. more. And I mentioned this again in a previous podcast. The problem with that is that um, it's the public's money. It's their mm-hmm. purse. It's the public's NHS. If they want more consultations, um, we can't fight it for long. If that's what's happening, we have to provide them. The issue, though, is that if we're providing a bigger service, which I think we are, should we not be charging more? Yeah, you see, this is quite a um, bone of contention, isn't it? Um, do we charge for investigations? Don't we charge? The NHS should be free, cradle to grave, back in Bevan days. Um, and yes, it should be. But I do feel that if, you know, the public or certain members of the public keep, what's the word, keep sort of, help me out with the word here, abusing the NHS, if you like. Misusing. Misusing. You know, they know that they can go to ED and get a second opinion because they haven't agreed with the GP or they haven't agreed with the, you know, the the consultant that they're under. Um, And the availability of you know, Google, you know, I can Google and know if I say certain words, I'll get a CT head or if I Google certain words, I'll get a CT of my abdomen. Yes. And if they keep sort of going on the way that they're going, they are going to destroy the NHS because we can't afford it. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I I think you're right. There's also an expectation. One of the things that I've found amongst the public is um, because the public aren't doctors, you can understand why mm. they think these things, but they think that blood tests and scans and things... They think it's free. Yeah, well, it's free. And they think they're also beneficial. One of the things that a lot of people in the public don't realise is that a scan isn't always a good thing because scans aren't definitive. They misdiagnose very, very commonly. um, And we should only be scanning or doing tests on patients where we've got a higher level of suspicion. And I think what happens a lot, because GPs don't have ready access to bloods and scans, but they do, they can order these things. Um, uh, the public now want these things quicker. They think they have to get them. Sometimes a GP will be resistant towards ordering blood tests and scans, and that's a good thing because they're trying to protect the patient from overdiagnosis. Then that patient comes to ED because we've got these things on yeah. hand and invariably people get these tests. So I think these are just some of the mm. of the reasons why ED gets gets busier. But you're absolutely right. People have to think about this if... Um, the uh, consultation in ED is very expensive. Don't quote me on these figures. These are what I've been told. And I've been told that an ED consultation is £500 per patient and a GP consultation is £60 per patient. Yep. Okay. So every patient who decides to come to the ED department for a consultation, uh, you know, costs many times more than what they should do. Also, incidentally, it's £500 per ambulance conveyance, apparently, as well. So if you ring an ambulance to come to ED for something that you could be seen by your GP for, you've cost the taxpayer £1,000, whereas, you know, it would be £60 in general practice. So we have to think about that because it's, you know, I'm not trying to protect my money or the no, NHS no. money. This is the public money. And at the end of the day, it'll it'll have a knock-on effect um, in years to come. Um, and that's what's important to remember. Like you say, you know, if 
each time you come to 3D, especially if you come in an ambulance, that's a hundred thousand pound off the bat. Um, yes. Before you've had any investigations done, now you imagine we see between two to three hundred patients a day. Yes. And how many of them really, if we're honest, do need to come to accident emergency? Yeah, that's true, and and that's the other thing. So a lot of the patients that we see. Uh, really, really um, aren't getting the best best care by coming to us. Uh, this is very, you know, this is very, very true. And you don't get good care in ED if you're not extremely sick. And I've mm-hmm. said this before: if you are extremely unwell, you're critically unwell, and you're at risk of dying or losing a limb and those kind of things very, very shortly. We're really good at that because we don't pull out any stops. You come into our department. We think you're going to die. You'll get all the tests, all the scans, all the interventions. We'll do some pretty uh, pretty nifty things. But if you turn up to the department with stomach ache because you've got a bit of an allergy to the curry that you had the night before, yeah, you're likely to be subjected to all those tests because people are just in that trigger mode when you turn up. They'll order all those tests and do it, and you'll have subjected yourself to lots of tests and investigations that won't actually help you. And then you'll get a misdiagnosis because somebody will see something on the CT that's unrelated uh, and you don't get the you don't get the best care. And your weight, this is a thing. So in all the years that I've worked in ED as a, as a healthcare through to where I am now, I often find that people that are complaining about waiting can wait um, yes. and actually really shouldn't be there. Yes. Uh, I always say, be thankful if you're waiting in an ED waiting room. It means you're not dying. Yeah, we get that a lot. Sometimes the waiting room can look quite peaceful and yeah. and quiet and things. Yet behind the doors, you know, we've got ambulances outside with patients. They can't unload because yeah. there's no beds. Uh, we're running around. It only takes a couple of sick patients in resource to completely take all your resources, yeah. your doctors and nurses. This is what I was about to say. So, you know, we have a, a televised screen, don't we, in our waiting room that tells yes. you how many patients are in the department. And sometimes that might only be four. But what you don't realise is that four patients is in resource. Now, resource yes. is a level one or two area, a level two or three area, sorry, which is one doctor and one nurse to each patient. Yes. That then takes that patient away from the waiting room, uh, that that medical team away from the waiting room, quite rightly so, if your patient's yes. in resource, they're poorly. So necessarily it's not about the numbers of patients, it's the acuity. Yes. So it's how sick they are. And, and I think if it's one thing I could sort of tell the public and teach the public is, you know, be patient with us. You know, we're all trying our hardest in the ED department, from the cleaners up to the consultants. We're all trying our hardest. The fact that you're waiting four hours for an issue that you've had six months, really in the grand scheme of things. No, I would ask that of the public. I'd ask, you know, to public just to understand that one, ED is um, an expensive service. Secondly, scope of mm. practice. I've mentioned this before. Uh, you know, I... I uh, oversee an emergency medical team, not a general practice team or a, or a general medical team. Uh, it's emergency medicine. What I'm good at is emergency medicine. What I'm not good at is general practice yeah. and general medicine. So if you come to my department, my doctors will misdiagnose you, do tests they don't need to do on you. So really be very, very thoughtful about what you need to present to the emergency department. If, you, if you come to me with a rash, yeah, I, uh, that's right. you know, <laughs> I'm not going to know what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it just wastes your time and you'll, you might end up with a set yeah. of tests uh, 
uh, that don't bring you any benefit and might actually cause you a bit of harm. So you know, it's one of the things it, it it's um, you know, and it's getting busier and busier. And I, you know, I think I mentioned this before, but um, the catchment area of our hospitals isn't getting bigger yet. The footfall is is huge now. Well, you say our catchment's not getting bigger locally. We've had a local A and E department shut, haven't we? Yeah. Um, and that A and E has now become a UTC now with the two other hospitals, the sister hospitals, they're getting patients from what would have been their ED. One of the things uh, I didn't agree with when it happened, and, and I think it's going out of vogue now, I'm never quite sure where we are with the oscillation of this, is um, this push towards centralising medical mm. services. Uh, I, I don't agree with it. I've never agreed with it. I can understand some of the logic behind it. You know, the idea is that if we centralise uh, some of the care, let's say it was cardiothoracic surgery, and then the surgeons that you have there are subspecialized cardiothoracic surgeons who are very good at their even subspecialty, the very small part of mm. the heart that they deal with, uh, and then you kind of get better care. But what you lose is then you lose instant access to these things. Yeah. I always find it a struggle, let's say, with neurosurgery. Yeah. Because we have no neurosurgery in our hospital now because it's been centralized somewhere else, it takes forever to get your patients <laughs> to them, yeah. you know. And so it's great if you live in the city where that yeah. hospital is, uh, you know, you have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, you can be seen by those neurosurgeons within an hour. Yeah. If you're in a uh, peripheral hospital and you have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, you don't get the same no. care because you will end up with many, many hours waiting to be diagnosed, waiting to be referred, and then ultimately waiting to be transferred. And and they're also shutting down a lot of these small hospitals then because what happens, it's like the one close to us, um, the centralised services, it's less services in that hospital, um, then the skills decrease in that yeah. hospital, and then before you know it, there's no hospital left because no. everybody's sending everything to the central hospitals rather than utilising yeah. those hospitals. So. So I understand the reasons behind centralisation, but I I don't agree with them. No. I I like the idea of having your local hospital that can deal with most things um, uh, and can deal with them quickly. Um, but of course, you know, some services are always going to be centralised. Yeah, I think I think your sort of like you say, cardiothoracic is a very sort of a specialised area. Yes, but you know where I used to work. Um, we didn't do strokes and we didn't do MIs. Yes. So that's quite a vast amount of, what's the word, patients that are potentially affected by us not having them services and they were taken to the central uh, hospital. Yes. But, you know, all it takes is for, you know, a a paramedic to not notice the type of stroke that patient's having. They then land in the non-specialised hospital. They yes. get triaged, they get investigations. Then they're found to have a stroke or an MI or a heart attack, as for lay people that don't know what an MI is. Um, they then have to be transferred to another hospital. And it's not like the transfer happens quickly either. You know, we we ask for a category one ambulance, which should be within eight minutes. But because we're classed as a patient place of safety, it can take actually up to four yes. hours to get that ambulance, yeah, which is all right. delaying care. Yes, once you because once you actually land at a hospital, the ambulance service considers you to be in a safe yeah. place with a medical team, so they can no longer prioritise category one ambulance to you. Um, you know, which which I always find um, uh, frustrating at mm -hmm. times, you know. 
So, uh, so yes, I guess there's a lot of issues there. Now, what's your thoughts, I'll ask you straight off the bat, on privatisation within the NHS? Um, up until I've worked in the NHS, I didn't necessarily agree with it. But I think having, not privatisation of the NHS, but I feel like having insurance wouldn't be a bad thing um, if, from like a medical insurance point of view and paying for unnecessary tests if you feel that you want them you know accident and emergency if it is truly life and limb threatening we shouldn't not treat someone because they haven't got money i I don't agree with but then if you're you know re-attending a&e every couple of weeks because you're wanting a said investigation then yes i think you should pay for that private medicine has become a bit of a dirty word but a lot of people don't understand the different kinds Mm. of private And this is one of the things I'm quite interested in um, to get into more, maybe even on another podcast. But there's two kinds of private. There's private health insurance, Mm. uh, likes operated in Australia or America, for example. And with that is you go to a private health insurance, you pay a certain amount of money. And as and when then you need medical tests or interventions, you can access uh, that money to pay for those tests. The issue with private medical insurance that I don't like is it's open to abuse by doctors or the health care providers, not just doctors. Mm. The reason for that is you come to me and you've got private health insurance and I'm going to get paid now from your private health insurance, not just my salary. And you come and you've twisted your ankle. Well, if I do a chest X-ray as well as the ankle X-ray, that I'm probably need to be, I'm going to get more money. Yeah. And if I do a set of blood tests, now that might sound quite flippant because you know I'm talking about something like a twisted ankle, um, but it's not as flippant as you thought. So, no. what happens in the NHS if you come in with some chest pain? Um, but when we listen to the history and do the examination, if we don't think that's got a cardiac cause, let's say you've got chest pain because you've been coughing for a few days and then you've you've strained yourself or something like that, you've got reproducible chest pain, we might limit the tests that we do mm. because we know that if we do too many tests, we can get false positives. If you come in with that to private healthcare, you might get an X-ray, a set of bloods, a troponin, mm. a D-dimer, uh, even a CT chest. Now, the reason for that is, is in my interest as a doctor, because I can justify it now. Now I get paid for all those tests. Mm. Now that's what happens with private medical insurance, which is why I don't agree with that. However, that's not the model of private care that we generally tend to see in the UK. But private care here already exists. Your general practitioners, for a start, mm. are all private. Yeah, they, you know they're, they're not NHS. They own their own yeah, businesses. They're, they're all private. They're commissioned, and they've got contracts to the NHS. But they can also do private work. There's also, for example, a company not far from me called Navigo that provide yes. mental health services. They are a private, not-for-profit company. Um, who has won the contract from the NHS to provide mental health services in in certain parts of Lincolnshire. Now, the difference being is that what happens with those companies is they are private companies providing a service, but they are paid from the NHS uh, pocket, from the NHS purse. So rather than the NHS saying, oh, we've got a million pounds to provide um, mental health care in this town, 
therefore we will use our own department, they can actually subcontract that out to private companies. Now, I'm a fan of that because mm. that already happens already. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. Um, I do I do 100% think that, that having that, like you say, it's not that constraint. It used to be, didn't it? But like you say, a million pound for this. And then once you got to that million pound, that was it. Yes. We're actually having that subcontracted out. It gives a better patient care um, because they can branch out to different areas to get different funding, different supports. Yeah, and a private company is like Navigo, mm. for example. So they'll have, won a con- they'll have put in a bid to the NHS and they might have said £50 million. I'm being arbitrary with the money. I have no yeah. idea what it costs. They may have said £50 million and we'll provide mental health services in this area for a year. And then the NHS can think, oh, that's bloody good because it, it actually cost us £80 million yeah. when we did it ourselves or it might have cost the same. And then they take the £50 million, but it's in the interest of that company to provide the best service they can for that £50 million because otherwise next year the NHS will say, we well, you were pretty elsewhere. rubbish. Yeah. We're going we're to offer it to somebody else. Mm. So you create a competition. And what I find then is that companies who are only interested or only thinking about providing one service will make it more efficient yeah. because it'll be in their interest to make that £50 million go as far as possible. So I think you get better care, whereas in the NHS, it's just, you know, yeah. it, it, it's I, I find it's quite disorganised. Oh, yeah, you know, definitely. Um, you don't know when you're getting funding. You don't know when no. you're not getting funding. We often spend more money than what we've actually got. I don't yeah. know where that comes yeah, from. No, I don't quite know. We're all getting new A&E departments now, aren't we? That's, yeah, yeah, that's as right. As good as it is, but, yeah, where's that money come from? Um, but, yeah, no, I do – I. Uh, I don't agree, like I said earlier, that all aspects of the NHS should be privatised. But I think especially sort of specialist areas, like you say, like yes. um, Navigo, mental health services, um, sexual health privatised now through Virgin. Yes. I think privatising them areas, yeah, 100%. That's right. Adequate. And it's just about efficient care. It's not selling off the no, NHS. No. It still belongs to the public. We still pay our national insurance. Uh, it's just that we're using that money more efficiently by subcontracting it out to people who, who they want to try and do that more efficiently. So while we're on contentious sort of topics then, Michaela, recently in the news, I've heard that the government uh, is providing funding for 40 new hospitals. Mm. What's your thoughts on using money to build new hospitals? Why don't they just sort of upgrade and help the ones that are already there? Yeah, well, that's my <laughs> that's my thoughts. Yeah. You know, I I think we've no staff nope. in our department. We've no stuff. We've got no stuff, <laughs> no staff. Um, you know, I remember an incident with one of the consultants in resource where we couldn't find an ET tube. Yes. Um, to intubate, which is a basic bit of emergency equipment. Um, you know. So I think, yes, it's all well and good having these new shiny buildings that look good on the outside. Um, but where are you going to get your staff to staff them anyway? That's right. So we struggle to staff majorly. We can't find doctors. No. We can't find nurses. You know, we're, we're often doing shifts that are uh, short on staff and yeah. things. The way I see it is I don't want new hospitals no. yet. I want the hospitals we've got... To be better. To be better, to have the money yeah. uh, to be running efficiently. And then when we've done that, then I think we should think about expanding the number of hospitals we've got. Yeah, I think I'm going to sound a bit sort of political saying this, but I think sometimes the government can 
put a band-aid over the issues that are in the NHS by, like you say, let's publish an article in a paper about how we're going to build all these new hospitals, yeah. which Joe, Blog in the, Joe Bloggs in the public is going to think is amazing. You know, we're getting more NHS provisions. But yet, like you say, actually working in the NHS, we can't staff the hospitals we've got. We can't get equipment for the hospitals we've got. Exactly. Now, this is this is one of the problems. So we're getting political here, and I try not to be political. <laughs> and, um, you know, but uh, this is the problem when politics crosses mm. over with healthcare. One of my pet hates is people use healthcare a lot in politics yeah. and shouldn't. I think the NHS has asked, you know, when we had the recent elections, they they asked mm. both the, you know, the um, Conservatives and Labour and everybody else not to use the NHS as a political weapon. Uh, but everybody does. But what happens in politics is... Um, there's an issue. I always find an issue with politi- politics because you can do two things. You either do what is best for the public or you do what the public wants. Mm. Now, if what the public wants isn't what's best for them, you're in a funny position because if you do what they want, you get accused of being incompetent because, yeah. you know, it, does, it doesn't actually work out to be the best thing. Uh, but if you do what's best for them, you get accused of being a dictator yeah. and, you know, not doing what the public want. It's a very, very difficult mm. position. And what I find is that a lot of governments then, um, they tend to be in this horrible sticky middle ground between yeah. the two. And I think things like building 40 new hospitals has been announced because it sounds good. good. And it sounds like we're increasing. And I think to say what we're going to do is we're going to spend all these billions, is it 3.5 billion? I can't remember. Mm. We're going to spend that making our inadequate hospitals adequate. It's almost an admission that the that the NHS In a, is, is inadequate at the moment. Yeah, it's inadequate yes. at the moment. Yeah. Um, and that's the issue that I have. And I think it would be better to hold your hands up and say, mm. look, the NHS has been run on goodwill. It has been run down at the yeah. moment for whatever reasons. And I, I understand politics can be com- politics can be complex. Mm. It's not always easy to provide adequate funding. There are lots of issues um, that governments have to deal with. Uh, but hold your hands up and admit it and then say, do you know what we're going to do is we're going to repair the NHS. Um, and we're going to make these hospitals better. Yeah, I mean, you only have to talk to any sort of member of staff within the NHS and they'll tell you that, like you say, it's run on goodwill. It's the, We're run down, we're burnt out, you know, yes. we're working extra hours, we're off late, we don't get a break. You know, I work 12 and a half hour shifts. Yeah, Some absolutely. of them shifts I won't have a break, you know, but then... A matron will tell me after having a, a cup of tea at the nurse's station or a patient will see that, you know, I'm complaining that I'm not doing anything. But what you don't see behind closed doors is with that run down and with that yes. short staff that actually I'm drinking and eating on the go and I've not actually been able to pee for 12 hours, yeah, you know. Right. It, and I think I really do hate it that, you know, everyone's, oh, fantastic, we're getting these new hospitals. But like you say, we need to sort out where we are at the moment because yeah, we're not in a good place. I agree with that. I like the analogy of not peeing. I mean, the amount of times where I've tried to get to the toilet four yeah. or five times, and every time I'm walking there, <laughs> someone just gets a, you. somebody yeah. calls you, you know, yeah. Yeah. doctor, I need you, and, yeah. and um, you know, and I've, I've even had times had to say, "Stop! I've got to go to the bloody toilet," yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, um, but that's that's what it's like, and uh, you know, it, it is a tough career. I've often said, you know, I'm 53 years old now. Um, and you know, we still work. I still work in the hospital till two and three in the morning. 
Uh, I had to do a night shift once not that long back. I'll never, that killed let, you. I'll never let anybody <laughs> live it down. People still don't talk about me moaning about it. I think they've, ne- they've not tried to get me to do one since. Um, you know, but I work evenings, I work weekends, mm-hmm. you know, you work long hours. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, you don't ever feel as though you get to a stage in your career where you can relax a little bit yeah. and think, well, I'm senior now, so I'm going to relax a little bit and let all the young ones do the running around. It, ne- it never happens. You know? I think I think that doesn't happen anymore because of half short staff we are on the junior as well. That's right. Like you say, uh, and, and training opportunities and funding that the juniors have, whether it's, you know, from a healthcare support worker point of view, whether it's from a junior doctor, whether it's from a trainee ACP and everyone in between. Literally every department is short-staffed and yes. underfunded and not trained. So whereas in the days that have gone by, consultants could go play golf at a weekend and know that the the department was well looked after. Yes. It, they can't do that anymore and they have to not be on that shop floor for support yes. because they are often the sort of the having to do that to ensure that the department and area is safe. Absolutely. And I've just heard recently as well, talking to a colleague uh, I didn't know, uh, the Northern General Hospital at Sheffield uh, that I've worked at in the past. Now the consultants are working all the way through the night. And and I know some people might think, well, why shouldn't they then? Because other people mm. do. But I defend that by saying there has to come to a stage in your career, you know, where you've you've done all the hard work, you've done the running around as a young person, but as you get a little bit more older, you become a little bit more managerial. Yeah. Um, you shouldn't have to be working through the night and things like that in your 50s and even older. Uh, but now they're expecting to work at night. And the reason for that is, is because... Um, I think they're having to plug the gaps with yeah, the extra definitely. demand with yeah. the consultants because they can't find the other doctors. Well, it, you know? well it's like why ACPs was brought about. It was to yeah. cover gaps in, in medical rotors. Um, and without the ACPs, I think it'd be even worse. You know, I think you've come in the nick of time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, um, but, uh, you know, but definitely and, and but even, you know, with these added roles, um, uh, ACPs and we've also got uh, uh, physicians associates now. Have you come across yeah, that role? Yeah, they, they had a couple in my old trust. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure what the difference is. Do you, I, I think <sighs> it's, it's an untrained, sorry, it's not untrained. They're very they highly trained. They don't have to come from medical backgrounds. That's correct. They can just have a degree, I think, in anything. Yes. Um, and then go on to be, I think I met one that had a um, marine biology degree, which begs to question really, is it just putting a more of an academic approach to, to medicine? You know, yes, okay, you can then go on and do a master's and become a physician's associate, but your background's not medical. I don't, I don't really get that. It is interesting. Now, I do know a couple of physicians associates seem to be, uh, um, you know, really clued up, sort of clever mm. people. But then it does make me wonder what that rolls all around. You know, why don't they then make medicine more accessible? Which yes. I'm also a big fan yeah, of. Yeah. Um, you know, and and I I am a supporter of you know. Um, uh, initiatives such as wide widening access to mm. medicine, uh, you know, which is trying to recruit people from more diverse backgrounds and things, make medicine more accessible yeah. then. Uh, because I do kind of see the phys- physician's associate role more like traditional medical training, yeah. but, but shorter possibly, I yes, think, isn't it? Is. it? Yeah, a lot shorter. Um, and I'm not disregarding them in any stretch of the yes. imagination at all. You know, they're very valuable members of the team. But then... Uh, 
I don't, I don't know why not invest in what you've already got. Yes, yeah. You know, it's all right plugging gaps, but then yeah. the people that are coming in to plug the gaps aren't getting their support. So it's interesting. So I think what I'll have to do is find an ACP, I think, to come, uh, not an ACP, got one of those now. <laughs> <laughs> a physician's associate. Physician's associate to come and, and speak, maybe to give some insight. Mm. Uh, and as I said, I'm not dissing the f- physician associate role, uh, very capable, competent team measures. Mm. I'm just wondering about the initiative from, um, you know, uh, not so much for government, but from, you know, trying to figure out what that role's about, which gap they're trying to fill, you know, what, what the recruitment's all about. And it might turn out that, you know, that there's, very logical reasons for mm. opening up that course. But, um, you know, it just made me think it's almost like a mini medical degree and stuff. And then, you know, yeah. why yeah. why not, you know, or even um, have two parts to, uh, to a medical degree. See, I'm brainstorming now. Yeah, you see, I've always said I don't understand why they don't make, um, well, I do because then you'll have less nurses. But say like for, for nurses like myself who then want it to progress clinically, why not make it more accessible for us to become medical? Yeah, you know, that's right. I looked into it, and if I wanted to go do my medical degree, I only have a year knocked off for my yes. experience. So it's still a four-year de- medical degree. That's right. And I just think, you know, you've got a potential there of a pool of people that would go into medicine if it was a lot more accessible. I agree. You know, I, I think... Uh, you know, maybe it'll come. We should remove the barriers because there is a barrier to being a doctor. Yeah. It'd be nice to think about, a, you know, a route through where you could go on and become a doctor because at the end of the day, doctor is just a title. Mm. Um, you know, the, the actual doctorate that we have uh, is not a true doctorate neither. Um, so it's, you know, we were, we were actually um, called a doctor because back way back when we had to do three degrees. We had to do medicine, theology and law. So because we did three basically undergraduate degrees, that was considered mm. to be a, a doctorate. Now the doctorate is honorary. So it's not a full doctorate like somebody would do with a PhD and things. So it's kind of an honorary title mm. because we've gone on and done more than the standard three-year degree. Uh, we've done extra. Now, that's exactly the same for you, though, Michaela. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've gone on, you've done the nursing degree. Okay, you're going to do a master's. But you think that if you went beyond that then, that in a way would, you know, you should think you'd be entitled to an honorary mm. uh, doctorate. Perhaps it's something that they're thinking about in the future. It is something I would support um, because I'll be honest with you, I've seen um, nurses who are better doctors than than some of the doctors. You know, sorry, colleagues. No, I mean, you often, you know, we often hear, especially as nurses, we often hear, especially in handover, doctors feel like we're doctor bashing. And it's not that we're doctor bashing. Um, We just, as we said earlier, we come from very different backgrounds. Yes. Um, Like say, you're very scientifically based, very medical model based and very black and white so to speak where i think the nursing profession is a little bit more gray area yes we talk about rope logan and turning and the 12 activities of daily living and yes. how we can help someone achieve them where you guys are more on that medical level yes um which isn't necessarily a bad thing but i do think it can cause conflict um between the two professions but i think actually we go hand in hand and i think our training should be hand in hand as well yes Definitely. Very definitely. And of course, because you've got skills that you can teach to to us doctors. Um, and so I, can't, I like this. May I have started something new? Mm. I've got a new idea. 
So I like the idea of going on to become an advanced clinical practitioner and then maybe doing some more study where you learn some of the more complex physiology yeah. uh, and and biochemistry and things like that that we do as doctors. You know, if you did those additional mm-hmm. modules, then basically we've come from different directions, but you've attained the same level. Uh, and I would be a supporter then of people being awarded a doctorate, you know, yeah. and to be able to become a doctor because – um, because I don't believe in ceilings for anybody. No. Uh, and I, I've always believed that, which is one of the reasons why I was interested in your story, going from a healthcare support worker, going through to a, mm. to an advanced clinical practitioner, because ceilings are bad. Anything that holds people down and, uh, you know, back and down is a bad thing. Yeah. People should always be able to aim for the next thing on the horizon. You should be able to get to a position of being a a fully qualified advanced clinical practitioner and have another target to aim for. Mm. And I would say that if if an advanced clinical practitioner is at the level of a middle grade, that the the next thing on from that should be acquiring the the title uh, doctor if you wanted it. But but it's not just acquiring the title. It means you, I guess, are, um, you know, the same thing. Is that the right thing? Undertaking uh, the same role, isn't it? That's That's, right. And And, and I don't think we do at the moment. I mean, we we talk about this on the master's course, actually. Um, The problem is... It is very much dependent on the hospital and trust you work into how they see ACPs. The Health Education England say that advanced clinical practice isn't a role, it's a level of practice. Yes. Where the trust that I currently work in see it has a role. Yes. And so them two don't go hand in hand and that causes conflict. But saying that, I think it is a role and I think it is... Yes, it is a level of practice that you are aiming to work towards, like yourself becoming that of sort of a junior doctor or a middle grade, but it shouldn't just be justified by your practice. Right then, Michaela, so it's been fantastic. Thank you for coming Thank to talk you. to us and stuff. It's been very interesting to know more about being an advanced clinical practitioner. So you've been listening to the Think Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sean Favell. You've been listening to Michaela. Thank you, Michaela. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. Bye-bye.